When I went away to university, <laughs> someone bought me a book. Uh, recently they told me that they thought that I asked for it. Uh, I'm pretty sure that I didn't ask for it. Uh, but it made me wonder what they thought was awaiting me in Lancashire. It was, I've still got it, Fox's Book of Martyrs. <laughs> And uh, one of the first ones mentioned, hot on the heels of Polycarp, who we spoke about some months ago, was a man called Justin. Uh, Here's an artist's interpretation. He's so forever associated with his stand to death that actually he's usually known as Justin Martyr. So he definitely belongs in this book. And it's him that we're going to think about for a few minutes this evening. And as before with Polycarp, I don't just want to look at the good stuff. Uh, it's worth remembering that although they're called saints in the Bible, so are we, and we still sin, we have our blind spots, and we have our weaknesses. So I don't just want to hold up Justin as an example, but to see as how he points us to the Lord uh, Jesus Christ. With that said, let's dig in. First we're going to think about his life. Now Justin was born 100 AD in Flavia, Neapolis. Unfortunately, not in Turkey, this one, I'm afraid. Um, but it's in uh, biblically what we know as Sh- uh, Shechem, uh, in Samaria. That's about halfway between Jerusalem and Nazareth. And he was born into a pagan family, probably a mixture of Greek and Roman with all the things that go along with that. And all his life, he wanted to be a philosopher, a studier of knowledge and wisdom. And in those days, that was an actual thing. That was an actual job. You know, if you went to careers advice, that was one of the things they could tell you you could be. They even had a uniform and everything to go with it if you were a philosopher. And in those days, there were big movements in philosophy, big schools that you could belong to. In his writings, he gives us a rundown of his past experiences and all the different schools that he was a part of. His first teacher was a Stoic, who emphasised fate and logic and morality. Justin wrote of him, he knew nothing of God, and did not even think knowledge of him to be necessary. Then he started following a travelling philosopher who followed Aristotle, but it turns out that he was only after his money. Nothing changes, does it? Then he tried following a Pythagorean philosopher. Yes, he had a whole philosophy, not just a theorem, a whole philosophy. But the teacher insisted that before he started he had a grounding in music, astronomy and geology before he even started and he didn't have that so he couldn't go along with him. In the end Justin became a disciple of a follower of Plato which was probably the most popular school of the day. I'm not going to try and explain uh, Plato in the short time we have, go away and, and google it. But around the age of 30 he had a conversation with someone that would turn his life around. He had moved to Asia Minor, modern day Turkey, and he was already wondering about things. He was wondering whether he'd really found true meaning for his life. While he was in uh, Asia Minor, he'd seen Christians dying for their faith. And started to wonder if there was something to this Christianity thing. Because he saw the way that they stayed faithful, even to death. He was walking on a beach, or near a beach, near Ephesus. And he chanced upon an old man who was walking along the beach. The man spotted that he was dressed in a philosopher's cloak and struck up a conversation. He told you that the uniform would be significant. And all this is recorded in his writings. He tells us what's happened. The old man started to ask some probing questions to Justin about the basic tenets of Platonism. Reincarnation. How we know things. How we know God. And Justin soon began to see through this probing and question and conversation that actually Plato did not hold all the answers. 
Then the old man shared about the Old Testament prophets and the prophecies that they made about Christ, and how their prophecies had been fulfilled and attested to by the apostles. Justin later wrote, A fire was suddenly kindled in my soul. I fell in love with the prophets and these men who had loved Christ. I reflected on all their words and found that this philosophy alone was true and profitable. He still considered himself a philosopher, but now he was going to be a Christian philosopher. He started teaching in Ephesus, and then he moved to Rome a few years later to carry on with his school. He spent his time explaining the Christian faith and defending it from intellectual attacks from people who were uh, making arguments against it, both from Jews and from Gentiles. And he was called an apologist. Not that he was always sort of apologising, that's what I always think of when uh, I hear that. But the Greek word apologia means a defence. He was the first one recorded who made it his work to defend the faith. But his work did not make him popular. He was writing in part because many accusations were being made against Christians. So, for example, the occasion of one of his works is given that a prominent woman in Rome had become a Christian, and her husband was unhappy. Why? Because she'd stopped having affairs, stopped getting drunk, and now wanted him to become a Christian too. That's what made him upset. So he left her and went to another city where he could behave as he pleased and not feel bad about it, because his wife was now living a life that made him feel bad. She filed for divorce because he'd abandoned her, and her husband filed a charge against her. They couldn't punish her because she was too prominent, but then in Rome they started to punish other Christians instead in her place. And as he writes, he tells you that he expects to face similar, he expects to face these same problems. And similar he got. In 165 AD, so about 65 years old, he was beheaded by a local prefect. The account of his death is well attested and quite early. It goes like this. The prefect Rusticus, great name, isn't it? Rusticus, said, approach and sacrifice all of you to the gods. Justin said, no. No one in his right mind gives up piety for impiety. The prefect Rusticus said, if you do not obey, you will be tortured without mercy. Justin replied, that is our desire, to be tortured for our Lord, and so be saved. That will be our salvation, our firm confidence at the more terrible universal tribunal of our Lord and Saviour. He was martyred with five others. They said, do as you wish, for we are Christians and we do not sacrifice to idols. And the prefect read the sentence, those who do not wish to sacrifice to the gods and to obey the emperor will be scourged, beheaded, according to the laws. And so they took them to the customary place where they were beheaded and consummated their martyrdom, confessing their saviour. That's how Justin died. He was beheaded by the local authorities. But Justin was the first in a long line of second century apologists, people who defended the faith, and also second century martyrs, hence his name, Justin Martyr. So that's his life. What about his literature? Well, Justin wrote several defences of Christianity and various Christian doctrines. We only have three preserved in full. This is a long time ago. We've got bits of other ones, but three in full. His defence, or apology number one, his defence number two, great names are they, type of people, um, and then a dialogue with Trifo. His first two defences are aimed at a Gentile audience. They're addressed to the emperor, first of all, and then to the senate in Rome. 
they seek to answer the charge that Christians, that they were saying that Christians were atheists. That was their charge. Because they were saying that they did not recognise the gods uh, as the Greeks understood them, as the Romans understood them, therefore they were atheists. So Justin uses Greek stories, analogies, all sorts of different things in their culture, and he goes on to attack their belief, as well as defending the Christian view. He also seeks to explain some aspects of Christian practice that have become misunderstood. There are all sorts of things going round about what was happening during bread and wine. There were things talking about why Christians met on a Sunday and not on a Saturday. He explains similarities between pagan religions and Christianity, because that's one of the things they get to say, oh, it's just another one like ours. He goes as far as accusing Plato of plagiarising Moses, and he accuses demons of copying aspects of true religion and integrating them and introducing them into false ones. And as you read through him, you won't necessarily agree with everything. I read through the three things this week. At one point he uses a phoenix as an example, a real-life example of resurrection, not knowing that phoenixes aren't real. He claims that Socrates and Heraclitus were believers, even though they didn't really know it. Some of his uses of the Bible are a bit imaginative, let's say, but not to the extent of many of those who went after him. He's much more into types and fulfilments than just making it all into a story, which is what a lot of the people who followed him did. Most importantly, though, he attempts to show that Christianity stands up to scrutiny, and he does so in a way that's appropriate to the people he's writing to, in this case, the Gentiles. But the same is also true with his dialogue with Trifo. Trifo was apparently a leading Jewish intellect of the day. There, in that document, he argues that Christ really is the fulfilment of Old Testament prophecies. He answers objections Jews had to Christ being their Messiah, and uh, with Christian Jews who had seemingly abandoned the Sabbath and the food laws of the Old Testament. He does this well without going headlong into anti-Semitism, which was right for his culture at the time. He points to Christ's coming as being so significant that all these Jewish aspects of the law he speaks of were undone. Christ brings us the promised new covenant with a new law. He doesn't ditch the Old Testament as Marcion, if you remember we mentioned him with Polycarp last time. He doesn't do that. But he points to these things being fulfilled in Christ. Now at points I think he pushes things a bit too far on this. But he's trying to make it clear to his audience what a huge difference the coming of Christ has made. You can't just carry on with Judaism as before, it doesn't work. Just as an aside with what we're doing on Sunday morning, Trifo asks about the book of Revelation, as he's heard that some Christians believe Christ will return to reign physically in Jerusalem for a thousand years. This is something we'll cover as we, we go through. This is what he writes to Trifo. I admitted to you formally that I and many others are of this opinion, and believe that such will take place. As you assuredly are aware, but on the other hand, I signify to you that there are many who belong to the pure and pious faith and are true Christians who think otherwise. So he seems to think there actually that he's in the last few days of history, the Antichrist is imminent, uh, imminent, sorry. But even by AD 55, when that was written, there were already disagreements about what Revelation meant, probably only 60 years after it was written. But note that Justin says that there are those who disagree with him, but they are true Christians. He's saying it's okay that we disagree about this, it's not something to fall out about. But when Justin debates with Jews, he debates with them differently. 
He engages with those sorts of issues that wouldn't have interested uh, Gentiles. His issues and his answers match the people that he's talking to. And then finally, some lessons. Often when you read church history, Justin is sort of just trotted out to tell you what early church meetings were like. So when I've studied church history, that's generally what he's for. He mentions that Christians met on a Sunday, that they had readings from the New Testament, which he calls the Memoirs of the Apostles, and then that somebody got up to explain those readings. Great! I think that sounds a bit like what we do at church, that's why people sort of trot him out. But I think that's to miss what we can really learn from Justin's example. We had read to us earlier 1 Peter 3, uh, 14 and 15. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts honour Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defence to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you. The Bible tells us that we are to be prepared to make a defence. Same word, an apology, if you like. Why? For the hope that is in us. Now, I don't think that this is exactly what uh, this verse has in mind with what Justin is doing, with his sort of formalised writing books and things like that. But I'm certain that it's part of what he was doing. And the question I want to ask us this evening is, are we ready to make a defence? The command is to be ready, not just to make the defence, but to be ready to make the defence. What can we do to get ready to defend our faith? Or here, actually, our hope, what we're looking forward to. Justin took that seriously. But do you notice the context with that, 1 Peter 3, uh, 15? Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behaviour in Christ may be put to shame. The context which we give a defence into is hostility. When you're slandered, those who revile you, what are they reviling? Our good behaviour. Isn't it fascinating that the context of one of Justin's apologies was the good behaviour of a Christian woman and her husband uh, despised her for it, didn't he? We see there that word and deed go hand in hand. We have to show that we're living for something else. Otherwise, the world will never ask us what we're living for. Some that Justin had seen had actually given their lives to do so, haven't they? That's one of the things that got him thinking. So there's deeds there. That there's ways that we live that cause those conversations. But then we have to speak. Whoever that old man was that Justin was talking to will never know, not till glory. But his boldness in striking up a conversation and willingness to talk affected the course of church history and the lives of so many people after it. Just some random guy on a beach near Ephesus, just willing to say, hey, you look, you've got philosopher's cloak on, can we talk a bit of philosophy? And interestingly, that man chatted to a philosopher like a philosopher, just as in turn then Justin debated with Jews as Jews and Gentiles as Gentiles. He didn't just feel up a mantra or shout verses at them, he engaged with them where they were at. I wonder how we could be better at doing that as individuals and as a church. How can we engage with people where they are? And in doing so, all the way through, he points to the Lord Jesus in this. Because Jesus spoke to people in the same way. He both points to him in the fact that he points them to Jesus, but he reminds you of the way that Jesus spoke. 
Jesus spoke very differently, for example, to Nicodemus, the religious Jew, in John 3, compared to the woman in Samaria in John 4. Same message, but answering very different questions for those two people. The Apostle Paul as well reflected this model of teaching, 1 Corinthians 9, 19-23. But though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant of all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became a Jew, in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not my being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I might share its blessings with them in its blessings. So as we speak, we need to listen, don't we, to our family and friends that we would seek to win with the gospel. Not just spout at them. Let's live for Jesus in their sight. And then let's speak for Jesus to them. Thinking about where they are and what that means for what we say. We don't change the message, but we might be talking about different things with them. And at the moment, I think we're safe here to do that. It's very unlikely, I think, that in a few years, hundred years' time, people will look back and will suddenly have the surname Martyr. But that means, actually, we've got an amazing opportunity, doesn't it? Just in even when it was costing him his life, carried on. So let's use the opportunities where we can, and even possibly in the future when we can't. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the life of Justin Martyr. Father, thank you for the way that he was willing to lay down his life as a witness to you. Father, thank you for the way that he was affected by those other Christians who laid down their lives. Father, help us in a period in history where we don't have to do that to take the opportunities that we have. Help us to learn the lessons that Justin had learnt, Father, as he spoke to different people in different ways. Father, help us never to change the message. But Father, help us to think carefully about how we share the gospel with our friends, family, neighbours, work colleagues. And Father, pray that as Paul says, we might share in the blessings with them as we see them come to faith in Christ. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.